Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, June 24th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And a right exercised out of necessity for 50 years has officially been revoked. That is unprecedented. Women in almost half the states are appreciably less free to live their lives, plan their futures, correct their mistakes, make their own decisions than they were a day ago. And just because we knew it was coming doesn't make it any less shattering when it hit. Now, I understand, I 100% understand the other side's position, which is that the Supreme Court actually expanded a right, the right of the unborn. But their tactics, reasoning, and analysis, they're all off. A constant argument of the pro-choice side is the specter of death, and I wanted to look into this and get estimates on it a little more. I mean, you always see the symbols of the pro-choice movement being the wire hanger. Before Roe versus Wade was law, decades before, and since the dawn of humanity, abortions occurred. Women took great risks to get abortions. For over 100 years, around mid-19th to mid-20th century, they were always or almost always performed illegally. Now, according to a study by the Guttmacher Institute, in 1930, abortion was listed as the official cause of death for almost 2,700 women. Now, this was at a time when the U.S. population was less than 130 million. Now, it's over 330 million. That number, the equivalent of today's population, would be 7,000 women. That's more women than die of stomach cancer or bladder cancer or skin cancer. It's more than double the number of women who die from MS. However, that will not be the number who die trying to get illegal abortions now. There is no way antibiotics actually brought that number down in subsequent decades from the 1930s. Plus, there's mailed abortion pills. There is much easier to get contraception, which will prevent abortion. There are clinics in neighboring states. Abortion was illegal everywhere back then. I don't know what the death toll will be. It might be in the very low double digits nationally, it's possible that we won't be able to find a woman who died from an illegal abortion. But it is also true that women for decades and decades showed that they would go to great lengths and take great risks to get abortions, and that will not change. What has legal abortion done to this picture? Well, the Guttmacher Institute estimated that in 2020, there were 930,160 abortions. They provide the most accurate numbers. But listen to this. They also say, and extrapolate from state numbers, that in 1967, when abortion was illegal everywhere, there were 829,000 illegal or self-induced abortions. There were 65 million fewer women in America then than there are now. So legalizing abortion has made it much rarer. Illegalizing it will hardly bring down the total number of abortions. It will bring down punishment on those who seek it, Punishment that will include unwanted children or children who come to be wanted by their pregnant mothers, but not now, not when they're young, not when they're in unstable relationships, not when they had other dreams or goals. This is not 
an expansion of freedom. It's a gigantic retraction. It's a dreadful development made no less dreadful because we were all given a little time to prepare. On the show today, I spiel about the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause and who Dobbs v. Women's Health leaves unprotected. But first, hey, more great news. We had a president who thought satellites were switching ballots in U.S. voting machines. And the really, really great news, notice sarcasm there, is if he honestly believed that, it's a get-out-of-jail-free card for him. Ben Wittes, editor-in-chief of Lawfare, has been watching the hearings, as have I, and we both bounced around our ideas. His steeped in expertise, mine agog in stupefaction. That conversation is up next. The January 6th committee hearings are a lot of things, compelling, interesting, to some extent new. Maybe, besides the point, I don't even know exactly what the right question to be asking about the hearings are. So, joining me now is Ben Wittes, who is the editor-in-chief of Lawfare and one of the hosts of, oh, the In Lieu of Fun uh, podcast and YouTube channel. He's been watching all the hearings and talking about them. And I just got to say, in general, he may be following the internet more than I do. Hello, Ben. How are you? I am well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. What is effective? Define effective for these hearings. So I think you have to look at it in two uh, discrete planes. One is, is it uh, telling the story in a fashion that is uh, uh uh, adding data to the conversation that will be uh, compelling for historians, uh, for people who want to understand what happened in this period of history. Uh, and in that sense, it is extremely effective. I, I think they've been narratively quite compelling. They have done a thousand plus interviews that will be, you know, have been transcribed and will be uh, over time released. They've gathered a huge amount of information um, and uh, and they are telling it in a fashion that I think we're uh, a lot of people are riveted by and even more people should be riveted by. The second, uh, I think, distinct plane is whether they are actually creating political accountability. Uh, and this is... Uh, I think, a bigger open question as to whether they are effective, right? One would like to think that if a congressional committee with this degree of rigor establishes that you have participated in a, a three-month-long plot to overturn the U.S. government and an overturn an election that ultimately culminates in a violent uprising against the Capitol, that this would render you politically untouchable. Uh, but in fact, the people who have become politically untouchable as a result of this are the two Republican members of the committee, not the people whose conduct uh, the committee is investigating. And so whether over time this has an impact on the political environment in which the country is stewing, uh, I don't know. And I think that's probably the 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 shorter term test of effectiveness they're they're definitely telling a great story the question is whether anyone gives a shit 
Yes. So I noticed that of the planes that you asked us to consider, one wasn't, will it lead to a referral or in any way push down the road the effort to bring a prosecution against Trump? Why is that not a way to judge the effectiveness of what we're seeing? Because the Justice Department's and the FBI's information gathering tools are so much more powerful than the committees that there is no real reason to believe that the committee is telling the Justice Department things it doesn't already know or information it doesn't already have access to. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, yesterday's hearing was focused on the effort by uh Uh, Trump and this mid-level political appointee, Jeffrey Clark, uh, to install Jeffrey Clark as the head of the Justice Department so that he could carry Trump's water for him with respect to election fraud. Uh, The morning of the hearing, the Justice Department, the FBI or the Justice Department investigation uh, executes a search warrant at uh, Jeffrey Clark's house. Uh, They the Justice Department didn't need the contents of this hearing in order to have probable cause to do that. Uh, These are investigations that are proceeding for very different reasons uh, along very different tracks and under very different rules. And uh, as, you know, the Justice Department will do as it will do uh, and it will not except at the real margins, it will not be deeply influenced by the way the congressional investigation goes. Mm -hmm. But the Justice Department did ask the committee for some transcripts and the committee uh, refused or lightly rebuffed at the present time that request. I read that as, well, from what you're saying and what my assumptions were, they didn't really need, the Justice Department didn't really, quote unquote, need the transcripts. They just like to cross their T's and dot their I's, whereas the committee would like to, you know, withhold all exciting fire uh, for themselves. But I do wonder why the committee uh, at least rebuff them, uh, the Justice Department, temporarily. It doesn't seem to be that the Justice Department is publicizing what their findings are. So what would the committee be wary of? Yeah, so this is a really opaque matter to me, and I don't pretend to know the answer. So the but but here are a couple things. First of all, the Justice Department uh, may have reasons to want these transcripts that have to do with pending litigations, which they actually said in their in the letter. Uh, so when the Justice Department uh, is going to trial, uh, you want to know everything that a given witness has ever said on the subject, right? And so if there's an interview uh, with... Uh, with a congressional investigation, you want to know what was said in that interview. Um, uh, moreover, the Justice Department has obligations to dis- to defense attorneys to disclose certain types of information and, you know, to make sure that it is complying with its discovery obligations, it may need to have access to a bunch of things. Why the committee uh, is not uh, being cooperative with that is really not clear to me at all. Uh, it, I think the Justice Department here is just being defensive of their litigation, litigation posture in some of these uh, conspiracy cases. 
That said, it strikes me as unlikely that the committee is going to make major progress on on figuring out who committed what crimes at the senior political level that the Justice Department's grand jury process is not going to get to independently or, frankly, first. Yeah. So as far as prosecution, let's just touch on that and we'll come back to the committee. I can't get over the uh, high hurdle of establishing Trump's state of mind, mens rea. I've heard you guys on Lawfare talking about this. I've heard uh, criminal defense attorneys and former prosecutors talking about this. There seems to be a little bit of a rift. Some people who really, really, really would like Trump prosecuted are saying, you got to go for it. It's possible to convince a jury you can demonstrate Trump's state of mind. Another subset of this, yeah, bring a prosecution argument is something like, you never know, and it's just the right things to do. And if it's the right thing to do, you shouldn't take into account the odds of establishing state of mind. On the other hand, I'm much more compelled by, as frustrating as it might seem, Trump certainly seems to be able to plausibly claim that A, he really thought the election was stolen, or maybe some subset of B, I'm kind of insane. Where do you stand on that? Okay, so first of all, I want to break down your question into two separate questions, which is one, how conservative should the Justice Department be in the face of an uncertain case against the former president? And secondly, does the question of the president's mens rea raise a level of uncertainty in bringing that case? Those are actually analytically distinct questions. Okay, I like it. I am extremely conservative on this point, on on the first point. If I were Merrick Garland, I would not bring a case that I thought had a 2% chance of failure. Um, and the reason is very simple. Prosecuting a former president is an incredibly fateful step that has just enormous capacity for all kinds of unforeseen consequences. It could help him, for example, get reelected as president, right? If there were a sympathy backlash among among his uh, uh, his supporters or his wavering supporters, it could provoke political violence. Um, and so all of that is not to say that you shouldn't do it. I would actually like to see it happen. But I would like to see it happen if and only if I am really confident it can be done successfully. And so on the question of should, you know, if if you have a case that's probably maybe should be good enough, but you're you're not sure, should you bring that case? Hell no. Um, mm-hmm. You should bring the case that you're sure is going to win before a reasonable jury. Um, now, is there a serious question about Trump's mens rea? Uh, I think the answer to that is yes and no. If I were a defense lawyer and Trump let me, it is the best argument to make on his behalf. Um, uh, some kind of, you know, 
cognitive defect that he's actually not yeah. processing information like a normal person. Right, right. So let me interrupt. There are a couple ways, as I laid out in my question, there are a couple ways you could mount the mens rea defense. One is what you're just saying. The guy just didn't have the capacity to understand truth. But the other, and I think where you're going with this is knowing Trump and how he would be a bad client, he's going to say, well, we're going to put up the defense that the election was stolen. Exactly. We, <laughs> yeah. or, or, or at least oh, that he earnestly believed that. Now, that I think is a weak defense because uh, that gets into the willful blindness doctrine, which says, wait a minute, if you have all the facts in front of you and you simply refuse to process them, you know, if I show you 10 eggs and explain to you that they're eggs and you decide that they're apples and, um, you know, that doesn't you don't just get to do that, right? Right, right. So the good, the bad defense is 10 eggs are apples. The good defense is he's about two eggs short of a dozen. Right, or he's actually <laughs> not cognitively capable of telling eggs from apples. Now, I don't think Donald right. Trump is going to let his lawyers make that defense. I do think that's the best defense for him. And by the way, I think that's true of almost all of the in almost all of the charges that you could imagine against Trump, it's that he's actually kind of nuts. And it's yeah. you, I don't think you would make an insanity defense, but you could make some kind of diminished capacity. He's, you know, he's not actually processing this information in a fashion that's, you know, psychologically normal. Wouldn't it be great, by the way, if like Trump bought into this defense and then was wandering around in a bathrobe like Sammy the Bull to establish his his mental incapacity bona fides? I just don't want to think about Trump wandering around in a bathrobe. And so God bless. But I'm just going to put that thought out of my mind. Uh, yeah, I think I think I agree with you, though. There there is an aspect to the committee hearings, which are they are one sided. And that is the Republicans fault. But at the same time, it's someone who's a real believer in due process. If there were not Jim Jordan, sand in your eyes type, but other Republicans who could at least push back on the uh, runaway train of there's no way that he couldn't know and he had to know and there's only one conclusion to draw, maybe we would look at it differently. Maybe we as the public um, who really do want this committee to go uh, follow its conclusions for history, maybe we wouldn't think it was as strong as a case. It's just the nature of a prosecutor's brief. Yeah, so I agree with that. I think the committee uh, would have benefited from uh, one or two uh, more skeptical voices. I don't mean conspiracy theory voices uh, um, or, you know, people who would say, you know, sort of what about voices. But I do think having the, the, the weakness of the committee presentation, in my view, has to do with the fact that it comes off as a bit of a pageant because, you know, uh, this is the the committee presenting its kind of uh, Christmas pageant. There's no, you know, the, the devil is not represented in the Christmas pageant. It's kind of a show, right? And uh, And I do think it would be interesting to have a little bit of cross-examination of, uh, of the uh, witnesses, including, by the way, on this mens rea point. You know, they, they show lots and lots of people asking 
saying we informed him that he had lost. It would be interesting to have uh, somebody having asked each of those per- people, did he ever show any signs of having internalized that information? Did you ever hear him acknowledge that he had lost? Um, right, and there's, there's the, the committee is much more powerful on the on the point that he had the information to know that than the point that he actually did know that. So I do like you. I do think that this is important for the judgment of history. And it is also true that congressional committees often a large thrust of what they're doing is for the judgment of history. I think of the 9-11 commission, you know, many examples of that. But when, for instance, Bush administration officials try to escape the judgment of the present, they would always make an appeal to history. Well, history will judge us. That's nice. It gives you quite a bit of runway to make mistakes in the present. You know, what about that? I do think that appeals to history are in the realm of um, illogic, actually, or at least uh, a little bit of a bait and switch. Look, I think if the only accomplishment of this committee is to do a thousand transcribed interviews, that will be enormous value, of enormous value. It won't be of enormous contemporary value. Um, it'll be a, a tremendous resource for people who study this in the future, for people who care about it, for people who want to create political ads or whatever. Um, but it will not uh, be, it's not what the committee was for, right? And what the committee is for is the assignment of contemporary, not the ju- not just the judgment of history, but the judgment of the present about individual people, particularly Donald Trump. And I think the verdict is out, actually, on how effective it is at that. It's certainly effective to me. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm persuaded, but I was persuaded at the time, you know, yes. so I'm not the target audience. It's not yeah. clear to me that this is effective at changing anybody's mind. That said, you don't have to change very many people's minds to make an enormous difference. If, if you move two to three percent of voters, you have a sea change in poli- the political tides. So I I think it is very worth doing. It's important to do for historical reasons, for all kinds of other reasons. Um, but I am not convinced it's going to make a short-term political difference at all. Benjamin Wittes is editor-in-chief of Lawfare and a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. Ben, thanks so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Let's just take one hypothetical to show that the Supreme Court's ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health can't be constitutionally correct. There's a girl, a girl we should imagine, who tomorrow will be the victim of incest. And then in a few weeks, July 16th, she'll be horrified to have missed her period. So she'll responsibly seek out a solution in the next day or two. And in five states, the answer will be no, you are trapped 
and this will happen, rape victims absolutely will be prevented from having abortions in Utah, Arkansas, Louisiana, Alabama, and Oklahoma, no matter when they seek them. Two million women of childbearing age live in those states. By the way, rape and incest exceptions are not allowed in a lot of other states, huge population states, Indiana, Florida, Texas, and they all have bans that kick in at 15 weeks or in Texas case, six weeks, and they will also force girls to become unconsulted vessels for childbirth. The Supreme Court has said that the Constitution does not protect those girls. The Supreme Court did not seek to find and did not find in the Constitution any duty to protect those children. I read all the arguments which were about how women can choose to give children up for adoption or how women vote more than men. So really, women voters can unilaterally decide the course on abortion law, but a child can't vote and a child can't choose. And by focusing on the states with no exceptions and also no possible time period to ever get an abortion, what I'm doing is I'm taking away any counter argument about what a victim might have done had she acted perfectly. I'm even being very generous to Texas and their post-six-week ban on abortion because I really think for all practical purposes, that is a flat-out ban for an abortion of the kind of girl we're talking about. I am selecting the edge case. I'm doing that to point out that even if you believe we're balancing the rights of the unborn and the rights of the mother, even if you believe it's proper to take away the rights of the mother to give those rights to the unborn, that does not apply in the case I'm talking about. The Supreme Court ruling changed the status quo to a group of victims who have zero ability to avoid their victimhood. They're being forced to bear their rapist's children and there's no way out of that punishment. So I ask you, how could the Supreme Court's ruling be right on constitutional grounds if it fails to read the Constitution as protecting these girls? I'm not getting into the weakness of Roe v. Wade. I'm not talking about emanations of penumbras or the supposed invented right of privacy because we're all equally protected under the Constitution, 14th Amendment. And I'm talking about specific victims who are being denied that protection. They're indeed being victimized by the Supreme Court ruling. I know the six in the majority do not regard childbirth as a big thing, but federal law recognizes pregnancy as a protected characteristic under sex discrimination laws. A pregnant woman is vulnerable and in need of protection under labor law, denying pregnant women access to treatments or accommodations that wouldn't otherwise be necessary if they weren't in this protected class. That is unlawful. They need to be protected because they are pregnant. The states are forcing them to be pregnant. The courts are allowing that. And in the scenario I painted, there's no explanation for the girls becoming pregnant that has anything to do with the individual's choice. So this means the Supreme Court has violated these girls' constitutional rights. Now, I personally think every woman deserves these protections. Also, I acknowledge I didn't invent the equal protection argument. Ruth Bader Ginsburg thought it superior to the privacy argument that the court actually adopted. But I also think when you strip away any amount of agency or choice into the question of getting pregnant, the equal protection argument becomes unassailable. A Christian would say, yes, well, uh, the unborn are babies. Christian would say that, but that is not how the law works.
yeah, implicit in the workings of the mind of these six Christians in the majority, that does seem to be a part of the motivation, unlike the two Jews and one Catholic who dissented. But the unborn are babies. That is not codified in law. SCOTUS is not merely taking a right away. And by merely, I mean, it is the most radical act they've ever undertaken in my lifetime. And I don't just mean they're certainly dooming many Americans to worse lives, injury, or death. I mean that, but I don't just mean that. I mean, they are clearly allowing the states to violate the Constitution. Of course, it's only constitutional if the Supreme Court says it's constitutional, and the Supreme Court just said it's not. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the Just Assistant Producer. Joel Patterson, its Senior Producer. Michelle Pasca, COO of Peachfish, believes the Italian Leonardo satellites are not only changing ballots in U.S. voting machines, but they're secretly controlled by a kung fu master rat who lives in a sewer. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. 